everybody. It's Tanya Adlita back again with Recovering Church Girls, and I have been waiting for this conversation for months on end now. I have with me best time, or I keep saying best time, best-selling author, uh, Shane Snow of Smart Cuts, Dream Teams, and another co-authored book. You've got all sorts of things in the work, a uh, researcher, speaker, etc., and so forth. Uh, Shane, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tanya. And the reason why I've been waiting for this, the very first time that we met, we got into this conversation about recovering church girls and what mm -hmm. that meant. And you shared with me a story of your own upbringing and left me on a bit of a cliffhanger. And we didn't see each other until a month later. And the very yeah. first thing I was like, okay, wait, hold everything. I know you're going to go speak in just a minute, but I need to know the rest of the story first. So thank you for playing along with that. Yeah. I, I actually forget where I left the cliff. I mean, I remember that conversation. It was a, a great conversation and, and a surprise to, that we got seated next to each other and started talking about that. So we've been right, of all things, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what the cliffhanger moment was that I, I left you on. Well, I think it was, I don't want to tip the, the hand too much for the audience, um, but mm. it was something in your experience partway through your missions oh, yeah. in the church that you were brought up in. So before I let you take us there, um, one of the things that I love, love, love about this is this isn't necessarily a topic you usually talk about. I mean, you research so many things and you've got such a unique spin from a journalistic standpoint on business and creativity and development of teams and all of these things. And we're getting to really get to that deeper personal level, which I'm so honored. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, I don't talk about my private life very much. I do a lot of speaking and I, you know, I, I stick to my business and science topics. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to to do this, I think it is uh, sharing our stories is important and that helps other people to feel comfortable sharing their story. And um, there's a lot of people that are in this similar kind of boat as you and I, and uh, that's the reason this show exists, I guess. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. But yeah, I haven't, I haven't talked about uh, really my religious stuff at all publicly um, until this. I've mentioned, you know, here and there um, growing up religious, but that's about it. All right, so tell us, what does growing up religious look like to you? So to me, so I was born in Utah, in Logan, which is northern Utah, where my dad was going to school, and my family are Mormon. So my mother converted to the Mormon church when she was a teenager, and, um, and my dad, uh, so the Snow name is this sort of long-time Mormon name, like one of the early Mormon leaders uh, was a guy named Lorenzo Snow, and so there's this, this big family heritage there, and uh, the snows went across the plains to Utah when the Mormons first like went there and settled, you know, this sort of, uh, yeah, Indian territory basically and created this place so that they could get out of the United States. And then the United States came and made Utah a state. <laughs> um, so my family is all part of that. And then on my mom's side, she, she's a convert to the church. So, so I grew even up already like no pressure, you know, yeah, you're just walking into one of the founding <laughs> families of the entire religion. Right. And also, you know, something I've thought about more lately, actually, as maybe just as I've gotten older and as I've gotten to know my parents a little bit more uh, adult to adult, I've realized just how much finding religion saved my mom. Mm. You know, she grew up in a, in a really rough situation. And, uh, and so it gives me a little bit of pause that uh, you know, I've, I've had years of sort of a roller coaster of unwinding my feelings about uh, the religion, which you know, obviously, because uh, I'm on the show, I'm no longer participating in. Um, but uh, but it it literally saved her from a really bad situation. So between that and the heritage, yeah, it is, there's a bit of pressure. Um, <laughs> but it, it was a nice way to grow up. So I was the the first of seven kids. Uh, we moved from Utah to Texas to Idaho, and then spent most of my life in Idaho. Uh, so I'm the first of seven kids, and you know, the other pressure thing is uh, I was sort of set up as the, uh, you know, the example for all of my siblings. Uh -huh. and, um, I totally get that. I'm an yeah. only child, but I was absolutely the poster child of like the youth group and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. So, yep, I totally get that pressure. Yeah. So it's uh, it's interesting because when it's the only thing you know. So in my community, I lived in uh, in the county that's outside of a town that wasn't terribly big. Um, but in the community, most everyone are Mormon. And if you're not Mormon, then you're Christian of some kind, and the Mormons are trying to get you to convert. So that's, that's like the whole community. And, um, and so that, that's all you know, and uh, it ends up being a pretty pleasant way to grow up. 
um, until you you kind of want to get outside of that or until you, you start exploring outside of that. And part of you know my thing, I guess, as a journalist is learning and exploring and going to new places and meeting new people and trying to take things apart and put them back together. And uh, once you start doing that, uh, when you grow up in a small community, you start to, to realize that, you know, that everything isn't quite the, the way it seems. And then everyone else that isn't thinking that way can be perfectly happy and have a pleasant life. But then suddenly you have a bunch of agitation internally, which, you know, right. is one of the things that, that happened to me kind of on my journey. But no, growing up Mormon is, it's a, it's a strict religion. You know, there's a lot of rules, but you kind of grow up with this mentality that the rules are what make you free. Mm. So, mm -hmm. um, so it's like boundaries that uh, allow you to be happy. Um, and, uh, you know, I think from the outside, you might think that a lot of it is pretty restrictive. You know, there's the whole list of things you can't eat and drink and uh, no coffee, no tea, you know, no smoking, no drugs. Like some of those are good things. Some of those are, uh, you know, when I first started drinking coffee, I was like, everyone needs to know about this. This is amazing. <laughs> Does everyone know about coffee? And then it turns out it's the most popular thing ever. Um, that's awesome. So some of those things, people from the outside, they're like, oh, that's ridiculous. But if you go up that way, you're like, I don't know, you know, right. I don't need you don't coffee. Really I don't have a, a frame of reference otherwise. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit further, because I, I love the way that you said that. And I can certainly identify and it resonates with me that it was actually a bit of an idyllic childhood. And I think that in the, you know, kind of unraveling of things, there is an overshadowing of my memory that I'm not finding the happiness. I'm not finding the warm, fuzzy moments. I'm only finding the fear and control coming from the pulpit, if you are, mm -hmm. uh, or even just the idea of the rules and the structure. You know, I, I felt it when I was a kid growing up and I would kind of bump up against these things, but I, it didn't really dawn on me until I was even in my thirties into my turning 40, that I really started to put some of the pieces together and understand the structure underneath it. And that that's really where the angst was coming from so did you have a moment at all that you lost any of that you know kind of rosy glow to your childhood or was that always true for you oh no I yeah similar similar journey where there there's a point when I mean if it's all you know um, then uh, you know you could say it's Stockholm syndrome or you could say it's just like naivety or whatever but it is nice you have community you have um, you know, a lot of emphasis on family and kindness. And these are things that I, I think I'm really glad for mm -hmm. um, having, you know, established, I guess, early on. Um, but when you're a teenager, you kind of want to rebel anyway. Sure. And so, um, but my my version of rebellion was, was sort of silly. It was like little things like, you know, staying out past curfew to go skateboarding, you know, and skateboarding at all. And like, bleaching my hair like those things that are just so benign if you're mm -hmm. not but was just radical I, I'm like dying not to laugh because <laughs> I can identify on so many ways you know here I am as like the poster child and I'm the one doing uh, you know missions as a teenager and mm -hmm. I'm doing all the fundraising for that and all the rest of it and you know my form of rebellion was talking on the phone to a boy when I wasn't allowed to oh. or you know like really yeah. scandalous things and I there's a part of me that I'm so so grateful that I was still in a very confined you know kind of environment when I probably would have made some really stupid choices had I known otherwise. And then there comes to be that point of reckoning afterwards where it's like, oh, well, I don't have to do any of that anymore. So now as a young adult, what do I want to do? Yeah. And it's, yeah. Just, it's interesting to kind of play with, were we worse in our 20s and 30s because we were good in our teen years? Or, you know, how did that all play out? <laughs> oh, there's this thing that a couple of my friends and I call breaking Mormon, which I'm I'm sure it's the same with a, with a lot of religions, but the, at the point when you realize that you can drink alcohol, um, <laughs> it's like you go in really hard and, um, and then you're like, well, if alcohol is not bad and if coffee is delicious, then maybe, <laughs> you know, every drug is fine. And, and there's this sort of, uh, I, I think it's a slippery slope, right? Yeah. It's, and that's what they warn you about too. It's like you try one thing and then you're going to go slide right down to hell. Um, but there is this sort of, desire to sort of go really hard um, mm -hmm. and, and try all the things that you didn't get to try. But I do think the nice thing about, um, so I, you know, in my, my 20s was, or when I was 20 was really when I, I kind of stopped um, believing it was true. But then as many years of unwinding, I didn't actually drink coffee or alcohol or try any drugs until I was 30. 
And I think, you know, after a few months of going like too crazy, um, there was, there's a difference I think between when you're a mature adult mm -hmm. and you can sort of recognize the moderation thing as a good right. thing. Um, I think you can pull that off a lot more easily than if you're doing the rebellion thing as a teenager Absolutely. and your brain isn't even fully formed. So I'm glad that there were boundaries that prevented me from going over the cliff. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and maybe that's my personality. I wouldn't have, or maybe I would have, and maybe I felt like I was going to go over the cliff because I was uh, reacting to, you know, the, my upbringing when I did uh, start breaking the rules or whatever. Right. Um, but either way, there, there are some benefits to that for sure. I think it, when I was a teenager, when I started just doing little rebellious things, even though they weren't like that crazy, that's when I started kind of getting angsty about, well, what's the purpose? I started asking the, the why these rules and mm -hmm. why are these rules? And some of the history is sort of suspicious. Uh, you know, a lot of religious rules, when you really unpack them, they turn out to be things that were very practical at one point. And then if you, if you just suspend your belief for a second and say, well, what if someone were to make up these rules? Why would they do that? You can find some pretty easy answers. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, usually uh, those that are going to benefit those who are making the rules, it tends to be so, the case. <laughs> here's one with the, with the Mormon, um, the, the word of wisdom was what is called the health code. It's all pretty good stuff. I mean, some of them are silly, like tea, you know, is a little silly, but, um, you know, tobacco has been shown medically to be like pretty unhealthy, um, especially if you abuse it. But uh, how that rule came about is the, uh, the founder of the church, his wife was giving him shit basically for uh, people spitting tobacco on the floor of the church. And um, so then like a weekend later, God has revealed that tobacco is not allowed. <laughs> Uh, and so I, you know, I, I appreciate that in many ways, but there, you know, there, there's a, there's a story that if, again, if you strip away the belief, I, and I, I don't, uh, I don't want to diminish anyone who does believe in that, but I think if you want to find a practical, pragmatic reason for why these rules came about, you can find them. So you can find that explanation. And when you're doing that, uh, inside of a religion and as a teenager, it's hard to, especially hard to kind of unpack. Um, but when you're doing that, you then have, are faced with, well, do I believe the, you know, the easy version of the story, which is that, you know, someone had a practical reason for making this up, or do I believe the faith version, which I you know that one actually might be easier to believe at this point in, you know, the community that I have and wanting to be a good person and, um, and all that. But so, so there's that angst, but when you ask, um, did I, uh, sort of lose the rose glasses at some point? I certainly did. Um, and, uh, and there was a point when I, I don't think I, I went as far as a lot of my friends who've, uh, who've quit being Mormon, um, have gone where I didn't get super bitter, but I got really disillusioned, um, before I kind of came back around to, Hey, there's positive things. You know, one of the things that, that I was pretty disillusioned about, um, was the, uh, the sort of patriarchal, um, order of it all. Mm -hmm. And, and what you're talking about, you know, the, the, the guy from the pulpit who's telling you what you need to do and you can see that that benefits often that guy uh the mormon church is sort of like this runaway train to me where it was started and i can see like my story of the history is you can see the foundation well-meaning people believing something that was benefiting a few people um but now that the generations have gone by and it's gotten less fundamentalist and and sort of less culty mm -hmm. um and more mainstream kind of like mainstream protestant almost um, you can see these are well-meaning people who are perpetuating something right. that they, they believe in or that they love or that's given them hope or whatever. And so it's not, there's not some sinister, you know, group of people at the top, like, mm -hmm -hmm, <laughs> let's get them to do whatever. It's, uh, it's well-meaning people perpetuating something. But I was disillusioned by the, hey, how come it's only men that get to make all the calls and that get to, like, say the prayers and, you know, things like that that bothered me. One of the things that I came back around to on that note is, hey, uh, patriarchal sort of men first sort of community is not something I believe in or want to be part of. But for my mother, who part of her issues growing up were her parents' divorce and not having a father, not having that kind of male, positive male influence in her life, mm -hmm. she's actually really appreciative of that. And she's, she's not upset at all right. about the men being in charge, which just occurred to me, you know, not terribly long ago. And so it makes me think maybe there's, uh, you know, there's a point when I was really upset about that. 
Mm. And now I'm a little less upset about that because I can see, hey, there's some positive, at least in my own family. Um, does that outweigh the rest? No, for me, no. But uh, <laughs> but I don't want to. Uh, I, I don't want to tell anyone that uh, something that they find that gives them hope or relief or comfort uh, is a bad thing, even if it's, you know, is a bad thing for them, even if it's a bad thing for me. Right. Absolutely. And I love the way that you say that, especially because so much of what I found in this work in Recovering Church Girls is that it's really about recognizing the autonomy that each of us have in our own journey and embracing and celebrating that and finding the places where we align as opposed to the things that divide us. And I think that's one of the things, especially I grew up, you know, kind of on the Protestant side of things, but so many different divisions. Well, you know, Methodists believe this and the Southern Baptists believe this. And I was Assemblies of God is how I grew up, which Mm. I didn't know. Like, I thought we were the progressives in the bunch. (laughs) I didn't know that we were the fundamentalist. So when you talk about like all of the rules and the restrictions, I'm like, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Yep, that sounds familiar. But again, this idea that we can still honor each individual journey, and it makes me think of namaste. When mm. I first heard what namaste actually meant, because of course, everything that I'm into now was labeled as new age when I was a kid, and it was sure. all thrown into a box and, you know, Pandora's box, don't touch this type of a deal. Right. And to come to find out that namaste simply means that the God in me honors the God in you. Like, oh, I love hell? that. That's freaking scriptural. Like, I mean, come yeah. on. How can you <laughs> yeah. how can you say this is a bad thing? You could you could plug that right into the Bible and no one would blink. Oh, absolutely. Well, and there's that's the thing that's been so fascinating for me is that there are scriptures that back up so much of the energy work and the healings mm-hmm. and all these different kinds of things. And I'm like, I think maybe there was a little bit of fear and manipulation and control going on yeah. in this environment. But I love also the counterpoint that you bring to this is that just because it's something that that you and I or other people like us might kind of, you know, arc against, that it just ruffles us the wrong way, there are still so many people that are served by this. And how do we then find the balance as a society to have that kind of freedom? I mean, hello, we are the United States of America. That was kind of the whole idea of religious freedom. And yet the practical application of it can get really tricky, especially in yeah. our families. Yeah. I The thing that's tough with for me with what you just said is I, the pressure to believe something versus the, uh, you know, the like exactly what you're saying, right? Finding something that works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this uh, kind of core tenet of the Mormon faith, which is that you need to ask God, pray and ask God uh, whether it's true and that you need to develop that, they call it testimony for yourself. The irony is part of my problem is I did and I didn't get it. And then, and then you say, well, uh, what happens if I don't, get that answer that I'm supposed to get. And then they say, well, then you need to obey the rules. You're not being righteous enough. If you're righteous mm-hmm. enough, then you will get that answer. There's basically only one answer. Like you can find out for yourself, right. but there's only one answer. That part I don't like. Agreed um, wholeheartedly. But I think if someone wants to choose uh, for themselves and in their right mind and not being sort of pressured into it as a kid and then pressured throughout your life in a way that you can't back out of it, mm-hmm. that I don't like. Um, but the, in terms of the tenets themselves and the principles and the beliefs, if that's what you want to believe, then I think that's wonderful. And I, I really like, do you know who Reza Aslan is? You know this guy? He's got the CNN show Believer. Um, he wrote, so I think he's, I want to say Sunni uh, Muslim, um, but he, he's Muslim. But he, uh, he wrote this piece that affected me a few years ago. I think it was on CNN that basically he said that there's, his belief is that there, we can't understand God. And um, for those of us that want to believe in God or want to believe in some sort of spiritual higher thing, um, there's lots of routes to becoming close to that. And that to him is the point. And so you can go broad across a lot of things and explore a lot of different ways of tapping into your spirituality, or you can choose one and go deep, even recognizing that that's not the one answer because we're not ever going to understand the one answer. And so he said, and I choose um, Islam. But, uh, but you should choose whatever you want. And, and he's like, I choose this. And I, there are certain rules that I choose not to do because I don't think that they help me get closer to God. Um, and I know that this isn't the one true religion and that's fine. And I hope you respect that. And I really liked that. Um, I don't like being sort of forced into or pressured into or manipulated into believing something or adhering to something. Um, and I also don't like the idea that if you want to devote yourself to a, you know, a spiritual practice or a religious practice, 
that you have to believe everything about that. Mm -hmm. I think, and that was something that I tried to do for a while with, uh, with Mormonism is I tried to pick and choose actually what I liked and, until I, I got to the point where the things that I wanted to keep were things that aren't peculiar to Mormons at all. And so mm -hmm. that's when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done. But, um, but I like that, uh, at least at this point in my life, that philosophy of if you want to find something higher, go ahead and find it anywhere, but find it in the way that makes you happy. Mm -hmm. um, and don't let anyone pressure you into doing something that doesn't make you happy, basically. Right. And so let's talk about that a little bit, because I think that there is this idea within a lot of the church communities right now that what we see happening in mainstream society over the last couple of years has been this elevation of happiness and the pursuit of individual happiness. Mm. And a lot of the church people will say, or at least I should say those that I've been in contact with, I'm just, I don't want to make a blanket statement here, but some of the things that I'm seeing coming back is, well, that's just really selfish. That's just permission for you to indulge in whatever makes you happy. What about your responsibilities to your family? What about your faith? What about your community? Mm -hmm. And I'd be curious to know your perspective on that, because I think that when you grow up in that environment, there is so much pressure. And I love the way you said earlier, this idea of well-intentioned people that are just continuing the storyline. That helps me frame things so much more positively, mm -hmm. um, because I remember, you know, just as a, a moment here, I think I was four, maybe, in Sunday school. And I remember the conversation was, we want you to bring your unsaved friends to church. Mm. And at four years old, I sat there and I was so confused because I wasn't allowed to have any unsaved friends. The right. only people I knew were all in this little classroom with me, mm -hmm. you know, with the little clip art and that type of a thing. Um, so how could I possibly bring anybody to church that I don't already know? So mm. that pressure, you know, I felt yeah. that at four and, and I felt this disconnect, but I didn't necessarily know what to do with it. Yeah. And then, you know, fast forward and, and I will say my mom gave me the most beautiful gift not too long ago in a very random, you know, conversation. She said, I just want to let you know that I've been wanting to apologize to you for the way wow. that you were raised. And she said, I just want you to know that we did the best we could with what we had at that time. And so I'm crying and she's crying yeah. and yeah, it was, it was a yeah. beautiful, beautiful moment. And I think, I think I needed that. I didn't mm -hmm. know I needed that. Um, but I think I needed that even to move forward with this project because even as great of a moment as that is, I know that there's still places where we don't see eye to eye in order for me to be able to speak my truth in that yeah. I need to be able to have that space. So yeah. So all of that to say, you know, this idea of the individual process, the individual journey, yeah. the individual seeking of happiness, how do you feel that resonates or doesn't with this process of, you know, kind of figuring out what we really believe and how we yeah. live that out ourselves? Yeah, the, uh, you know, the counterpoint to, hey, I just want to do what makes me happy, that counterpoint of, well, you're being selfish First of all, that's a talking point. Like it's something you're taught to say to that person because you want them to come back and to be part of the fold or whatever. Um, but when when I break it down, I think the the things that make humans happy. Or well, there's underlying values I think that are kind of like the things that like they make war crimes about. Like don't kill each other. Like seek peace, seek respect. Like those kinds of things. That if you're doing that and that is your underlying sort of framework for how you live your life, then I don't know what you can do that's seeking happiness that is being, uh, a, that is impinging on other people's, um, you know, freedom or their happiness, uh, but it is being selfish. Like if you really value kindness and respect, then you're going to be a good community member. I think that the problem is when they say being a good community member is believing this yeah. or belonging to this or doing the X, Y, and Z. But I think like with, I mean, there's, uh, so going back to, you know, the rules, like there's the, the easy ones to point out of like, oh, you're being selfish because you're drinking alcohol now, or you're having sex out of wedlock, or you're doing whatever. And like, when I break those down, I'm like, there's a point when doing any of those things can be damaging to other people or to yourself. But there's a lot before that point of, uh, you know, having a glass of wine with a dear friend if that makes you happy and it's not actually enough to hurt your liver and it's not enough to make you an alcoholic, 
then, um, and you're doing the pros and cons. Does this take one minute off my life, but am I going to be unhappy in that last minute when I'm <laughs> like really frail and can't think? I don't know. Like, I, I think it's weird to sort of throw that out as a generalization. I think if going outside of the religion means that you're also embracing kind of uh, values around taking advantage of people mm. um, or every man for themselves, then I don't like that. Sure. That's me personally. I mean, those are some of the values that I, I cling to, but there's certainly the like, don't murder people and have some respect um, and, you know, seek truth and peace and all that. Mm -hmm. um, those things are good things. Like, you know, try to understand people and, uh, and let them, you know, live their lives. I think if you're doing that, then, then that talking point sort of doesn't make sense. I, I do think that a lot of times those are, are ways to pressure people to feel guilty mm -hmm. so that they come back. And not by anyone's fault. Again, this is what we're taught, like from age four to say. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. So, and and I feel weird saying this because I, uh, you know, I still have in the back of my head, hey, you know, my parents who I love and people who who still believe in in my former religion and any religion who really care about that, I don't want them to hear me say something like that and feel like I'm just disrespecting them. So that is where it's weird, but I I think it needs to go both ways that we need to allow people their personal freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and where that personal freedom starts to infringe on someone else's ability to live, um, then that's where you need to start, you know, being, uh, I guess, discerning and, and start asking questions. But, but that's exactly the thing of telling someone they have to behave a certain way. That's like infringing on their ability to, to live and to choose. And so I think that actually somehow goes counter to actually a lot of what is taught mm -hmm. in scripture. So Absolutely. anyway, that, that's kind of a rant, but that's how I Yeah, no, 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 I'm right there with you. Yeah, I, I think they, first of all, I just, I so appreciate that perspective because I think that what I'm hearing and what you're saying is really there is a, a set of universal laws in the idea that universal, sure, we could go to the laws of attraction definition of universe, but I'm thinking more of just applicable to all of us. Mm -hmm. And the idea there is agreeing to the same definitions. What does it mean to be a good person? Is it simply to act with kindness and respect for the other human being that's in the situation? If that's the case, and if we all agree to that definition, then that definitely changes the rules that we, you know, subscribe to whether we realize it or not. And I think yeah. that really it's, it is that awareness piece I have found that is so fascinating in these conversations because you're peeling back layer after layer. And if you simply don't know that there is another layer underneath on which you're standing, then how would yeah. you have any other frame of reference for that? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's ironic. The book that my laptop is perched on, I'm going to move the screen here, um, <laughs> that I'm reading right now is called The Righteous Mind Ooh. by uh, John Haidt. And this guy is a, a social scientist. He's a psychologist who pioneered research in um, moral psychology. Hmm. And, um, and it's fascinating. He's an NYU professor. I recently met him, and, and now I'm reading his book. Uh, but basically, he talks about how the difference, so the, the subtitle of the book is why good people can disagree on religion and politics. And, uh, and this is something that I, I hear, I've heard in both main places I've lived. So the home that I chose is New York. And most of my friends are uh, a religious and usually politically left-leaning. And most of my friends back home in Idaho are very religious, particularly Christian and Mormon, and politically right-leaning. And I hear both groups say the same sentence so, so often, I can't believe someone could think that. And hearing both of those on different sides, and I think that these are good people and these are good people. Right. And, uh, and this uh, John Haidt, the, this professor, kind of explains how that can happen. He breaks down there are six fundamental universal human morals that if, you, if your brain is not damaged and you're not a psychopath, then there are six things that you can kind of drill down that are sort of the bedrock of a morality and what makes you feel like something is right or wrong. And I'm going to forget all of them, but it's like... <laughs> Kindness, loyalty, um, respect, I think is one of them, fairness, authority, and something else. And basically, he says that the difference between particularly left and right politics is you place more value on, so on the left, more value on kindness, and, uh, and I forget what else. And on the right, there's more value placed on authority and loyalty, some of those. And so when you start to <clears throat> pull out issues that are particularly contentious, in religion or in politics, um, you could, uh, you know, an easy one to, that just comes to mind as I'm, you know, not even through this book yet is immigration 
um, how you know the left sort of thinks about immigration versus the right, or particularly undocumented immigrants, and and a lot on the left are saying we need to take care of these people, and you know we need to make sure that they're safe and you know do the right thing and be fair. And on the right, um, you know we say well they're breaking the law, and we have this sovereignty of this country to, and we need to protect the people here. And you can drill down to the moral argument on both sides. And once you start to frame it that, hey, you're valuing those morals that I value too, just less than I value these ones. And that's okay. We can now start from that place that's underneath the political party, that's underneath the religious undertones, that's underneath everything. And I think that that, yeah, when we're talking about religion, ideally, I'm thinking you can talk about that too. I mean, it's what you just said, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whenever I was, so I was a Mormon missionary um, for two years. And uh, that was a very strange period of my life. But one of the things that, uh, that I recognized when I was a missionary is that when you're trying to teach someone about your faith, start in the place where they already believe. Mm. You know? So don't start with Joseph Smith and he can't drink coffee and pay 10% of your money to the Mormons. Start with, uh, do you believe in Jesus? And if you do, okay, let's start with like, where's our, our common ground? Um, and that's a good way to then have a, a discourse or a debate about you know the details. That's much better than than coming in hot. Um, and I, I think that actually is pretty good practical advice for whether you're trying to convert someone or trying to explain to someone why you believe what you believe and why that should be okay or they should be okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, starting with those common things. And this is where I'm at with my parents. Is uh, is you know my my line that I've used a bunch is you know I'm on my own journey and I'm you know I'm trying to seek uh, you know. Uh, the path that I'm supposed to be on, but the things that I, and, and I'm not going to the Mormon church anymore, but the things that I do still hang on to is that I believe that there's something higher and that I believe that kindness is the most important and taking care of people and, uh, and being respectful. That's, that's my sort of main thing that I focus on and, and that they also get. So mm -hmm. that's sort of where we're at. And, and we actually don't really talk about the details um, because I think, you know, in part they don't, want to or don't want to know and I certainly don't want to. I'm um, in the same way with my family. I totally get it. <laughs> but I but I think the more that we can understand, you know, why people believe what they believe and get to some common ground, I uh, I think that if if you're a well-meaning human who's able to listen and to, you know, to set aside fear or anger or whatever for a minute, we can get to some commonality no matter what mm -hmm. we believe. Absolutely. And I find it so just fascinating and incredibly ironic that it's the tools that we both learned, whether specifically or by osmosis and by experience, in order to convert someone to believing what we believe, we lead with the common ground. And mm -hmm. isn't that really the case no matter what, regardless of if we're trying to convince someone to see the world that we, the way that we see it, or if we're simply trying to find a connection, we can lead from that same direction. And I just, I, there is yeah. a piece of me that's kind of like, oh, the irony is so sweet here. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. it's like here, this is what we've experienced and we had to actually unlearn and yeah. choose what we believe in and of ourselves, you know, obviously individually, but then now we have this shared experience. And I know exactly what you mean when you say, here's how we can convert someone to find mm -hmm. that common ground, because that's really, it's the same thing. It's just a different application. Yeah. So you mentioned this idea of being a missionary for two yeah. years. And this is where the cliffhanger came in for me mm -hmm. that I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, because uh, we got halfway through the story and then we ended up everybody changed in the event and and you slipped out and i didn't get the rest of the story <laughs> so tell us what happened on your adventure uh as a, a mormon missionary in that two-year time so yeah so there's uh every uh male mormon is uh there's sort of a, a set of things that you're supposed to do if you're righteous and you're gonna kind of be accepted and um you know you do this sort of uh kind of like a altar boy stuff is the best way that I would describe it. Um, kind of like as a, as a young man, and then you're supposed to go on a mission for two years, which means that you, um, you save a, bu a bunch of money to go move somewhere in the world and go teach people about the church. And then when you get back, you're supposed to get married to a Mormon girl and raise a family and start the cycle over. So that's, that's sort of the path that you're supposed <laughs> to do. And, um, and you grow up and there's a lot of emphasis. You sing songs as a kid about, I hope they call me on a mission so that I can go and teach people the gospel. And so there, it's just assumed that if you, you're going to do it, and if you don't do it, there's this huge stigma. Mm. Um, 
So, and I was, I was a good kid and I, I believed and, uh, and, and they get you to go at just the right time. Um, now it's 18, it was 19. So for two years, right at the right time where they get you out of college before you go to, you know, to go experiment and, uh, and meet other people uh, who are not like you. Um, and, uh, and when it's this sort of very formative time. Um, so, and they, they assign you a, a place to go. And, you know, my friends went to Brazil and the Philippines and whatever. And I got assigned to Newark, New Jersey. Um, actually, <laughs> it was the, <laughs> yeah. And I, I was, you've got people going all over the world to these really amazing locations and, and no offense, Jersey, but really yeah. to Newark. <laughs> it's just not exotic. Yeah. Um, and so and it was actually Morristown was the, the headquarters, but Newark was where I spent most of my time Newark and Patterson. So th these are not pleasant places, but uh, I got assigned to learn Spanish so that I could teach uh, Latin immigrants. And, uh, and it's very difficult to convert people in New Jersey. Like it's not like fertile ground or whatever. <laughs> so it's really tough. Like people don't want to talk to you. So you go around door to door, you knock on doors. I didn't spend too many days knocking on doors uh, before I realized that that was just a bad strategy. So then you meet people on the street, you meet people through members of the church. Um, a lot of what I ended up spending my time doing was teaching English classes and teaching basic finance in America classes to mm -hmm. new immigrants. Um, and then, and then we basically say, we teach them at the church and we'd say, Hey, if you want to learn about the church, you can do that too. Not a lot of people take you up on that, but it felt good to do that community service. Um, so I spent two years doing that. And, uh, the first thing that happened is like week one, I got there and I was like, Oh, they lied to me. Because it is not fun. Like the videos that they show you are like you're with like your buddy, you know, and you're dressed all nice and, uh, and you knock on one door and someone slams the door at you and then you laugh and then you go to the next door and it's a family and they're like, we've been looking for something our whole lives and this is it. And then, <laughs> then you make them really happy and then they have grandkids and all of them are like wonderful, happy Mormons. That's what they show you in the video. But at least in New Jersey, maybe this is how it works in Brazil, but in New Jersey, people yell at you and pull guns on you and they, they don't, they, the second thing doesn't happen. They just slam the door. They don't answer the door. Actually 99% of the time they just don't answer <laughs> the door and you're on the street and you're trying to talk to people and you're trying to hand them out cards or whatever, or like help people and people don't want help. Mm. You know, there's someone who's struggling on the street and they're like, get away from me. Um, and at the same time, there's a weird thing too, because we were in a lot of really rough neighborhoods where a lot of people had, had found religion. There's a lot of churches doing work in some of these rougher neighborhoods already. And so you have this simultaneous sort of respect. There's neighborhoods that streets that you could walk down looking like you have money and be safe because you're Mormon missionary because they're like, oh, those are the church brothers, leave them alone. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there's this antagonism when you try and talk religion because they don't, you know, this is our religion and we think that you guys are crazy. Um, and so we got hit with uh, what we call anti-Mormon stuff quite a bit. And uh and I, I learned that there's not this vast conspiracy of anti-Mormons just like spending all their time trying to destroy the Mormon church. But that's how it's sort of framed. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so, but there's basically people hit you with concerns. Either the Bible says this, but you guys do that. That's sort of the most basic. Or, you know, the, the real tough stuff is, hey, I heard in your church history this happened. How do you explain? Mm -hmm. And so you start getting hit with this. And, uh, and then you want to know how do you respond. And so uh, there were a couple things that happened at once. One is I started getting disillusioned by, there's a, a, this rule book, this binder full of rules that I was trying to understand. Like these rules aren't in the Bible or the book of Mormon. Like why all these rules? Like no climbing trees and like stuff like that. And, uh, and you know, and I asked and they're like, well, one time a missionary climbed a tree and broke his arm. And so now no one can climb trees. And it's like, fine. But why do we say this comes from God? Mm. Why is this not just the house rules of the mission? And there's this whole thing. And I started getting kind of like irritated by this. Um, but it was fine. I was like, you know, well-meaning people, these are the laws of men, not God or whatever, but even though they're wrong by saying it's from God, but I was upset about that. And, um, and then you're not allowed to listen to music or go on the internet or read anything, basically do anything that gets you outside of the, mm -hmm. the Mormon bubble. And, and they say it's for good reason is because you need to focus and all that. But I went on the internet to go kind of learn how to sort of apologetically uh, deal with some of these concerns like um, yeah there, there's weird ones but you know the the main ones that everyone knows about are like why did Mormons have lots of wives and now they don't and <laughs> um, and the talking point is well the Mormons were persecuted and a bunch of the men got killed and so they had to take these other women as their wives to like take care of them when they were moving across the plains because there were these massacres like Mormons were murdered like 
there was a, an actual law in Missouri that it was legal to kill a Mormon back in like the 1840s or something. Yeah. So uh, between the persecution story that was taught you and the persecution story that was real, there is that thing. Um, but, uh, but that was the talking point that we were supposed to do. But like, it didn't quite hold up when someone said, well, the founder of the church, he married, married men's wives and he married a 13 year old. And what do you say to that? And I was like, that can't be true. So I went on the internet to find out. And I went to these Mormon websites from Mormon apologists who are, who basically are historians who have the real historical records and they explain them. And, and I found out, I'm like, oh my God, this is true. This story about him marrying all the, you know, the guys go off to war on missions and he marries their wives. Like, how do you explain that? Right. How is that justified? And, and, and Mormons do explain it and justify it. And they, uh, some that know that history have found peace with it. But a lot of Mormons have left because of that in particular, mm. who don't believe that there's a good story behind that. Um, and there's a lot of Mormons actually that, that have made peace with it. where like, hey, this was a flawed dude who mm. gave us something real from God. And I respect that. Um, sure. But but that I, I was like, no. Um, and, uh, and so then there were, there's 80 other things that basically I dug into the official church history has taught to us, you know, in Sunday school and the actual church historical records and other records, what they mm. say. And then when you dig in, you realize that the leaders do know this. They just kind of hide the, the rougher story um, in favor of the clean story because that's easier to swallow. And, uh, and so at that point I was like, oh no, what do I do? Right. This isn't true. And, or maybe some of it's true, or I don't know. And I kind of freaked out and was like, I got to go home. I can't go home because mm. if I go home, like it's my whole family and community and what do I do? And so I, it was this process of trying to reconcile. I don't believe half of this, maybe more. I don't know. I'm afraid to dig in further to find out that I don't believe any of it. Mm. Um, and, and so what do I do? And so then uh, that's the point when I just started not caring about the rules so much. I was like, I started listening to an iPod, like, and <laughs> You know, and nothing crazy, but just like, I, you know, I got to get through this next year. And, um, and I focused more on the community service and less on the baptizing people. And, um, and I got through it and, and I came home and then it was like, what do I do? You know, because I, my family and my community and I'm going to a religious school and all that. So it was a few years of sort of unwinding and I basically left Idaho um, and then kind of down, what are the downgraded my involvement in the church? I'd still go once in a while and I'd still be supportive of the community and stuff and, and that, but, um, but I downgraded and downgraded and downgraded until the point where I was like, nope, I'm, I'm done. But then I kept that to myself for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then it was years later that I was like, all right, finally, I'm going to try all the things that I haven't tried. But the, uh, the missionary thing is, it's really tricky because you are kind of trapped in this situation where you are doing good and everyone is praising you and you have all this, you know, this respect from your family and you, and you do feel like you're helping people because people that are in bad situations, giving them a religion can be really good. But then I, I had a really hard time after I kind of sort of coming to grips with, uh, with my disbelief mm -hmm. asking, I had a hard time asking people to pay money to the church, mm -hmm. you know, like poor immigrants. I'm like, God will bless you if you give 10% of your income. I'm like, but I don't believe that, right. um, which is really hard. Uh, but yeah, and, and what's interesting is so many of my mission uh, companions, that's what they call them, your partner. So you, you, there's two of you at a time and, and you switch off every six weeks. So many of them have come to the same kind of conclusion. Mm. I think New Jersey was particularly hard, um, but I have two, uh, two of my best friends in the world, one who passed away, but one who's, who's still around, um, they with the three of us got stuck together in like a rare sort of three partnership at one point and we all kind of had this thing happen to us at once and so that was really kind of powerful to have that shared sort of experience mm -hmm. um and so so bruno my my best friend in the world who who is one of those guys he and i have uh we we relate a lot to this and we actually can joke now about weird idiosyncrasies of the new jersey mission um and that helped a lot and so actually you know i've kind of found some community in that you know, that was one of the things that I was really worried about losing is that community and family. And, and, and actually here in New York, I've, I've made sort of a family um, of, uh, of friends who have been through some similar things. Um, you know, one of my roommates uh, grew up in a, in a different kind of, uh, of sort of fundamentalist religion. And, uh, and so we can relate and sort of share stories on different sides. And my best girlfriend is, uh, is also a former Mormon. And uh, so that, that's helped. But I, it's looking back on it, I'm, I'm totally monologuing at this point, but looking back on it, <laughs> One of the things I was really afraid of losing was the uh, the being worthy of people's love, mm. 
and, and realizing that I can have that in a community that I build in, and then I can have a different kind of relationship with my parents so that they can still love me even though uh, I'm not doing the Mormon thing, although that was hard for many years, mm -hmm. feeling like they didn't. Um, and you know, the relationship is not what it was before, but, um, but realizing that those things that I wanted are not actually, again, peculiar to the Mormon church. Those right. are things that you can find other places. Right, absolutely. My best friend and I talk about that as our chosen family. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a very similar situation. I don't know if I had told you this part of the story yet, um, but I was in a ministry as an internship for a year. It was a year between high school and college. And okay. again, what an interesting time that they, you know, kind of grabbed us right there. And uh, same, very similar uh, structure in the sense of no external influences, no radio, no TV, um, no movies that were beyond, I think, a PG, PG reading. Um, mm -hmm. And you could only go in groups, you know, all these different kinds of things. And it was very much, wow. you know, the parents loved it because yeah. I'm sending my kids a thousand miles away, but I know they're safe because of all of these rules and all of the structure. Mm -hmm. And our jobs were those in the ministry. So brilliant uh, business model in the idea of oh, yeah. get the cream of the crop of the salt of the earth American teenagers who are hell bent on doing whatever is necessary to get that gold star because yep. it does all come back to self-worth and I definitely want to circle back mm. with you on that one in a second but then you know let's get them to raise all the funds to cover the expenses that we would have had to pay for them and instead they can work for us for free and actually not yeah. even for free they're going to pay us to work work in the ministry. And that's exactly what it was. So, yep. you know, we worked 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Uh, we had a very structured routine. We lived at that time, we lived in an apartment complex uh, that was very near the office building. I am very fortunate that I was the last class in that particular group because after that, they bought 40 acres in the middle of nowhere in Texas. And things were oh. pretty rocky. You know, when I was there, they went oh, off the no. rails when they moved to Texas to the point yeah. where they actually ended up on 2020 as is this ministry a cult? Um, wow. And I think at that point, I started to really, really unravel things. So I went from that ministry to being uh, a resident advisor at a prominent uh, Christian evangelical charismatic university, again, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's like the Mecca, the Bible Belt you yeah. know, type of center here. So I went from the ministry into ORU, and then I immediately got married, and I was married for about seven and a half years. And it wasn't until that all ended by my choosing, I didn't have my first drink till I was 31. Okay. So I, I totally yeah. understand. Like there's Similar so many journey. things that, yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm like, yep, that totally resonates. Um, but just this idea of chosen family, you know, there were mm -hmm. four or five, six of us that were in the ministry together. A few of us continued on to the same university. We were the troublemakers in the group, mm -hmm. you know, like here we were always the good kids in our individual worlds. And then you throw us into this environment and we, that's when I think we started to individually question things, yeah. but we were so conditioned not to question that there was still this tension um, and we are- you Don't bring it up out loud either to no. each other, even if you all have the question. No, and I was curious about that when you mentioned the idea yeah. of you with your, your best friends, uh, you know, what was that moment like of going, this is how I'm feeling and I'd really like to talk to you about it, but I don't know if I can because I don't know how much you believe or disagree or whatever. Yeah. It becomes that, you know, like at some point in time, I feel like we just kind of burst. And thankfully we have the, the friendship, we have the shared experience to have as that foundation. Um, but yeah, our apartment, we were always the ones we'd get together. It was a family meeting. That was how they framed it. So whenever mm. somebody did something wrong, we had a family meeting oh, the next no. week. And do you know how many times it was like such and such is no longer allowed. And, you know, we would kind of look at each other. We're mm. like, well, we got another rule made for us because yeah. that's just that's just what it was. And it wasn't even like we were bad kids. Uh, it was just, you know, the there were so many things we were starting to uncover, but mm. we didn't have all the pieces in place yet. So Again, I can totally. <laughs> it's the psychology totally of all of that is so fascinating to me, and how it's so similar, right? Mm -hmm. And across different, uh, yeah. I mean, it, I I think that makes me believe that it is human psychology that's at work. Mm -hmm. That you know, a lot of oh, and a lot of these groups are splintered off or taking cues from other groups, but um, but there are things that that humans have figured out that they can use to get people to do things that they want them to do, and. 
Um, and yeah, once again, not even realizing that it's, uh, and not even believing that it could be bad or wrong. Right. And I think that's such an important piece to remember because I really, I mean, there's a handful of people I can look back in my history and say, no, they knew exactly what they were doing and they mm -hmm. were out to manipulate and control. Yeah. Having said that, take those few percentage away. I really do believe that the vast majority of them were acting in the best interest of what they thought they knew at that time. Yeah. And they wanted good things, you know, not only for us individually, but for the collective as a ministry and, and all the rest of it. But let's talk a little bit more about this idea of self-worth. Mm -hmm. And the I love the way you mentioned being on mission in Jersey mm -hmm. and having this, you know, the accolades. Like you're, mm -hmm. you are on the street, literally on the street, doing the good work, and you're being praised for it. Yeah. And there is this piece of you know, the the way in which we were raised to honor good work in and of itself, that we're not mm -hmm. supposed to seek the praise, but inevitably it, it usually comes. Yeah. And just the addictive nature that that can really inspire in us. And yet here we are, we're supposed to be doing good work for the purpose of doing good work, not to get the accolades. And then I feel like in my case anyway, that definitely created something in me I, I am convinced that my people-pleasing, the mm -hmm. workaholic piece, uh, mm -hmm. and the perfectionism, it all came directly from my experience growing up in the church. Am I alone in that? Do you, no, does any that, of that resonate these, with you? You just dropped all the key words of every therapy <laughs> session uh, that I have had. Um, there's, there's a bunch there, but there, one of the things that I, concepts that I like about the concept of God or deity is the God that is, has unconditional love. Mm. Um, and the thing that is ironic is that's a concept that, yeah, that I think a lot of people like. And yet, inside of a organized religion, and I think even when you really look at, like, say, the Old Testament, the love is pretty conditional um, upon you doing the right things or not doing the wrong things. And uh, growing up, yeah, super religious. There were there was this sort of implicit, the explicit was we love you and we love you no matter what. But the implicit was, but only if you do X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z. Right. And that's reinforced through you know a million behaviors, a million interactions, a million church lessons, and and it's also reinforced by this: if you do the right things, then we show this outpouring of love, and mm -hmm. we you know there there's this sort of reward system almost of. Mm -hmm. Um, you get the praise and you get responsibilities that are high profile and you get held up as an example and you get called on at church and all of that. And, um, and it's just the, yeah, it's this sort of system of rewards that, that is very, it ends up being psychologically manipulative um, or at least uh, it messes with you once you get out of it. Uh, so I can't speak to, you know, when I was fully in and fully believing, but certainly once I had stopped believing and, and even now there's this element of just in my life of, I don't want to disappoint people, even if they're adults. This is the thing that my therapist has me recite. Like adults can be disappointed, but I have a really hard time with that because all the adults were all these authority figures that if they're disappointed, then God's disappointed mm -hmm. and you don't feel safe or secure. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's also this, the people pleasing thing of uh, doing anything you can to do the right thing, to be, uh, you know, to sacrifice your own well-being or desires or whatever in order to be an example or to help someone else out, going out of your way to help someone else out, even if they don't need it, um, at your own sacrifice, being something that you get praised for and rewarded for. Those things, I think, are still deeply embedded in my psychology. And that's stuff that, you know, learning to recognize them and even talking about it, you know, verbalizing it like this is helpful, but it takes a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, yeah, what you're saying is true. I think that my self-worth was attached to basically doing the right thing, being pious and, mm -hmm. um, and being recognized as pious. Mm -hmm. and, and so, I, yeah, the thing that I keep coming back to in therapy is this, uh, this idea of not feeling worthy of love, mm -hmm. which actually has big implications in your personal life you know, in your relationships <laughs> and your friendships. Right? Yeah, yeah. But I totally hear you loud and clear on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, as you know, anyone that's, uh, that's been in a dysfunctional relationship, if you're self-aware, you analyze what you did as part of that, even if you weren't, you know, the only problem in the relationship 
And my dysfunctional relationships in many ways have boiled down to me doing things, behaving in ways that, uh, that sort of betray myself because I don't feel like I'm worthy of love. Mm-hmm. And, and even going as far as to, you know, trying to sabotage relationships before they happen, because I think this person is so great, they're going to find out that I'm not right. great. And that's, that doesn't help anyone, you know? And it also takes away their choice, like, you know, letting them choose whether they want to be with your imperfect ass, you know? Right. But, uh, but that's, been, uh, that's been a thing that's been real, uh, real tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I was just talking with, about this with someone. There are elements of the, uh, yeah, like the hustle that you learn, like the hard work ethic, um, and even the people-pleasing stuff. If you can recognize that that can be an asset, that knowing how to make people happy and how to, how to impress people can actually be useful, um, as long as you're not doing it to the detriment of yourself or others. Right. Um, that's okay. That's like a little skill. Um, one skill that I, I started freaking out about, oh, maybe six weeks ago, um, I had this conversation with, uh, with my, my friend who grew up in, the, in that different fundamentalist Christian church about how growing up and compartmentalizing your doubts mm-hmm. and, uh, and being, a, being taught to profess that you believe and know something, even getting up at the pulpit once a month. And, you know, with the, in Mormon church, they do this thing where you get up at the pulpit once a month and, or they ask you to volunteer and in some families, there's pressure to always do it every month, but you get up and you tell everyone that you believe. Um, so being able to do that while holding this sort of box of doubts with like this padlock on it, mm-hmm. um, I started freaking out that maybe I've developed this skill at lying to myself. <laughs> and, Interesting. Uh, my, my therapist told me that that's not the case, that I don't have, a, I'm not particularly good at it, is what she told me. <laughs> Oh, but uh, but that learning to do it is something that is a thing. Right. You know, I, I think I can do it. I can lie to myself. I'm not particularly good at it. Um, but Could I give you a different a different spin on that sure. to consider? Sure. Uh, because as you were mentioning that, there is a, a verse in the Bible. Um, story is that the Roman centurion wants Jesus to heal his daughter. And he, you know, finds him <laughs> through the crowd. And, um, and basically he says, it's your belief that's going to make her whole. And his response is, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm, yeah. And that, that one line, I mean, the fact that I can, like, tell you all the backstory for that, um, clearly that tells you about my upbringing. Um, mm-hmm. But that idea, I believe, but help my unbelief, has actually been a guiding thing for me in the unraveling of what mm. I was told in, a, in service of finding what I believe now. And this idea of like, it's okay to hold, it's actually for where I'm at right now. And your therapist might totally disagree with me and maybe Uh I'm deluding myself in this, but I feel like there's, there's something really powerful now about being able to hold opposing views Mm. and recognizing each has an element of truth to them. And that maybe, maybe that was something I needed to be able to get to in order to do the stuff that I'm doing now, to be able to say, I recognize this, I see the value in it, and I still feel like this at the same time. And I don't necessarily have to reconcile the two to be all one or the other. So it's been an interesting like an interesting yeah. little spin. <laughs> I, I like that. I, I, I do think that it's not so dramatic as I made it out to my therapist when I said that my <laughs> so skilled at this. Um, that's interesting. I, I think the thing that I, where what I've arrived to with this is being able to have one reality, um, and that that's good, but that also doesn't uh, exclude, I guess, the ability of what you're talking about, the, the ability to consider things and to to deal with ambiguity, mm. and um, you know, and to not have to have all the answers and to be able to hold opposing views and all that. That's that's not living in multiple realities. That's that's actually being more real. Like that's recognizing. The reality is, is things aren't so simple. Right. Um, right. And I, I, I like that. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, I did kind of put you on the spot, like in the middle of recording, saying, "Here, let me throw this out to you." you yeah. Didn't really no, I have like much that. Of a choice in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Shane, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I knew it would be. Thank you again so much, just for oh, your you. time and and presence, and really going there with us in this conversation. I appreciate hey, it. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, you guys, thank you so much for joining us along the ride. And if you have a friend or loved one that you feel like this would help be helpful for them and that would resonate, we ask that you would just share that along. So we'll see you guys again next time on Recovering Church Girls. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.